Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Behind the Brand. I'm so excited to bring you this next guest. Mike Novogratz is a stud. He is the founder, CEO, and chairman of Galaxy Digital. If you don't know Galaxy Digital, you will soon, and you should know about it. He was formerly a partner and president at Fortress Investment Group, LLC. And prior to Fortress, Mike spent 11 years at Goldman Sachs, where he absolutely crushed it, and was elected partner in 1998. He served on the New York Federal Reserve's Investment Advisory Committee on Financial Markets from 2012 to 2015, and now he currently serves as the chairman on the Bail Project and has made criminal justice reform a focus of his family's foundation. Mike has a degree in economics from Princeton University. He's an amazingly talented wrestler. In fact, that's how he got to Princeton. He served as a helicopter pilot in the U.S. Army and is a self-proclaimed extrovert, investor, and cryptomaniac. I know you will enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with someone who definitely gives the most interesting man in the world a run for his money, Mike Novogratz. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, our friends at the Dot Store Domains, where you can get your own custom Dot Store domain to set up your own website to sell products or services. You know, different from any .com or .net or other extension, the Dot Store extension really gives your customers a destination to shop for your stuff. Think about your domain name Dot Store. It instantly tells people your website is a store and lets your website and URL do the marketing for you. I tried it out myself and I'm loving it. I set up my own dot store with Behind the Brand. It's behindthebrand.store and you can find some of my favorite books from best-selling authors who've also been on the show and give me a great deal to sell their books or sell a few copies of their books better than you get on Amazon. You can get your own dot store domain by going to my special link at bit.ly forward slash your custom store. That's http colon forward slash forward slash bit.ly forward slash your custom store just go to bit.ly forward slash your custom store and you can check it out now let's get into the episode hi i'm mike novogratz i'm an investor a speculator a crypto maniac and you're watching behind the brand with brian elliott mike welcome to the show I usually ask my guests, how did you get this job? Like, how did you get to this point? Bring me back in the chronology. Tell me your origin story. You know, I was born in a big Catholic family, a uh, middle-class kid. My dad was in the army, uh, grew up in suburbia. I used to tell people I grew up in a John Hughes movie, though most of your viewers are probably too young to even know who John Hughes was, but he did movies like Pretty in Pink and real suburban America. Um, Animal House, right? <laughs> Animal House. I was a, I was a wrestler. Uh, in, in, in high school, and a pretty good one, and that got me into college, and so I went to Princeton, and all of a sudden I was like, ooh, I'm with all the fancy kids at Princeton. Um, I was a helicopter pilot in the Army, so I did ROTC. Uh, that sent me to Alabama, uh, and I realized there's a whole other half of America, uh, the South, and, you know, I left left the, the military and, and got a job on Wall Street, and first worked at Goldman Sachs, uh, was a salesman, my mom used to tell a story about me selling leaves uh, to the neighbors when I was four years old. I, I think I was a natural born salesman. And so I accelerated, you know, kind of through the ranks at Goldman. And then one of my bosses asked me to switch to trading, uh, to speculating, to, to investing. And, you know, it was a scary jump, though. I realized the traders made a whole lot more money than the salesman. Uh, and so I took, took the risk and uh, really suffered through uh, learning how to you know, make money by looking at charts and, and prices. And, you know, I, I was a macroeconomic investor, which is really trying to understand trends in the world, uh, economic trends, social trends, uh, psychological trends, and uh, 
happened to be in Asia during the Asian crises. And it was a, it was like learning in dog years, you know, one year was like seven years. Uh, and so, you know, luckily was good at it, uh, became a partner at Goldman Sachs and then, you know, did a company called Fortress, which you know, turned out to be a big company. We were the first company in the hedge fund private equity space to ever go public. And so had this heady kind of rock star moment in 2007, uh, only to crash in 2008 with the financial crises. Uh, but that's kind of the path. So let's go back to your wrestling days. And I'm always curious about this because I'm an athlete too. And, you know, I, I really relate to the underdog. So if I'm going to make a comparison, I'm probably more like that character or that true life story, Rudy, if you ever saw that movie. Uh, not much talent, a lot of heart, you know, a lot of effort. But For the long. output wasn't, you know, maybe where it should have been. I played football and baseball and traditional sports. But go back to your wrestling days. And... Um, I'm always curious with athletes, you know, what there part of athletics or what did sports teach you about business? Have you implemented any of that discipline or any of those kind of uh, techniques or strategies? You know, I wish I was as disciplined now as I was when I was a wrestler. Uh, wrestling's a brutal sport. I mean, you just, you get the crap beat out of you day in, day out. And, you know, no one never loses, right? Even the best wrestlers get beat. And so it teaches you a couple things. It teaches you how to be tough. Because it just takes toughness, you know, push-ups, losing weight, more push-ups, running, and then getting the crappy daddy. Uh, I tried to get one of my sons to do it. And he was like, Dad, why would I do that? It's too hard. And I was like, that's why you do it. Uh, and, you know, when you're a middle-class kid, you don't really think like my son did. You just do it. Uh, and so I think it teaches you grit. And, uh, you know, I started a charity called Beat the Streets, which brings wrestling to inner cities. And because of it, I really studied what wrestling does. And... You know, 14 of the 44 presidents or 45 presidents now uh, were wrestlers. Uh, no other sport is is as well uh, represented because uh, leadership comes from toughness and it's kind of an internal toughness. It's, it's born of discipline and, and hard work. And so I really do think wrestling permeates everything I do. Uh, I do laugh. You know, I've got a little belly now because I'm not exercising as much. It's pissing me off um, <laughs> that I had more discipline when I was young than I do now. Yeah, I think that's such a great message, though, this, you know, tendency to run away from hard things. Uh, and, and I'm like you, I, you know, I, I tell my kids the same things. It's like uh, when they say it's too hard or it's really hard, I'm like, yeah, that's part of it. And so like if you're it's like that old saying, I think it was uh, Winston Churchill who gets credit for it. Like if you're going through hell, keep going. Yeah. Because uh, I think the end of that statement is keep going because then you can get your reward. Like if you, you go through it, you know, you, you sweat, you toil, you get hurt, whatever, um, at least finish it because then you can either finish satisfied, like, you know, you've, you've stretched and, and uh, torn the muscles so they can rebuild and grow stronger. Or maybe it's just a little bit longer. You need to persevere, not give up and get pinned, and then you can win the match, you know, metaphorically speaking. It teaches you in some ways not to be scared. So you're leaning on your front foot. And so if you're walking through a bad neighborhood, because your physical presence, like, you know, I'm not that big. I'm five foot 11 and three quarters. Uh, <laughs> damn it. I always wanted to be six feet. Uh, I got three brothers that are over six feet. Um, but I've never been scared of getting in a fight. I mean, not that you should get in fights, but when you're so in that, that translates into business. It translates into your relationships. It translates into everything, trying to overcome fear. And, and wrestling teaches you that. 
Yeah, and I love you said that too because I, I can relate with uh, you talked about Fortress in 2007 and then 2008 what happened. If you weren't around in 2008, you know, everything just went to shit basically. And uh, and coincidentally, that is when I cut the cord uh, from my from my really cushy job at the studios. I was at Universal Pictures, home entertainment, doing brand marketing and strategy. I had a $40 million P&L, uh, fat and happy, basically, working on the client side. And then I had this idea to start this production company. And um, I actually got some really good advice from director Ron Howard, who, you know, has no idea the influence he had on me. But I was out in New York in a meeting with him. And I said, you know, Ron, I uh, confide in you a little bit. I'm thinking about becoming a director. You're this iconic director. What do you think? He's like, you know, if you feel like you got the chops, you go for it, you know. And so... That year, 2008, cut the cord, headed right into the perfect storm. But you're right. That experience, having gone through that hell and back several times, now we're going through this economic crisis again. Here we are, 2020, pandemic, everything's coming unraveled. And I'm like, you know what? I kind of got this. Like I've, I, This feels familiar to me. You know, I've got calluses on my hands now. And it's, it's less hard, I'll be honest. Yeah, yeah. Listen, once you've come back from getting the heck beat out of yourself, you know, once or twice, you have a muscle that you know you can do it again. And that's important because now I don't see setbacks as devastating anymore because most of it's all in your head. It's this narrative you come up with. It's like, oh, my God, I used to think I was X and now I'm not. Uh, and you're like, that's just, you know, let's just deal with our reality. And so when you, when you can get to the point where you're dealing with your reality, not some story of your reality, uh, then it's just much easier to march forward. Yeah, I love that. Tell me the story behind that chair, because that's an incredibly uh, interesting chair. Yeah, that you know, my, my wife gave me this for my 40th birthday, and it's got all kinds of... Uh, is it leather embossed? It is leather with all kinds of, you know, one says no pain, no gain, which was a little wrestling. One is, says, apes shall not kill ape. Me and my brother for Big Planet of the Apes fans. Mm. Uh Dimes was to my left. That's an inside joke. We were in Vietnam for one of my brother's uh, bachelor parties. We met a guy named Johnny, and uh, he was telling us how much he liked it. He was going to stay 10 years, and we were like Johnny. So we were calling him Johnny 10. Uh, like 10 years in Hanoi seemed like a long time, and then he became Johnny Dimes. And so anyway, yeah. Uh, I'm a Planet of, of the Apes fan as well, but old school, like the Charlton Heston days. Like, oh, that's what we were talking about. Is it, These are the old school ape movies. Get your hands off me, you damn dirty ape. You know that, <laughs> that line. Still, Still have a crush, crush on, on Kim Novak. Um, one says, don't screw the pooch. There was a great movie back, you know, when I was growing up called The Right Stuff, a book by Tom Wolfe about the, the Mercury 7 astronauts. And uh, when they when people screwed up, they called it screwing the pooch. Uh, don't screw the pooch. Anyways, these are all... So my brother's sayings mostly. So let me ask you, you're sitting in that chair, which is sort of a hero chair, and you had a hero moment in 2007. It reminds me of uh, this TED Talk given by Elizabeth Gilbert. Uh, if you know who she is, she wrote that. I think I was at that TED conference. I saw her give that talk. Yeah, that was the Eat, Pray, Love. And what stands out to me is what she said after having written that masterpiece astronomical meteoric successful you know launched into a movie uh with uh, julia roberts right huge blockbuster success and she's telling the audience i think my best work might be behind me uh so 
can you sort of speak to that a little bit? You know, sitting in the hero's chair, having had this big win, um, how do how do you deal with that? You know, you ever grapple with that same kind of question? Is our best work behind us? What would you say? So it's interesting. I was with this brilliant young artist last night, Chase Hall. You guys could look up his work and buy some of it. He is literally a brilliant guy with an amazing story. And I was having this conversation about creativity, right? You think about musicians or rock bands, uh, all the great songs they, they do, they're in their 20s. And even the guys that last as long as Bruce Springsteen, you know, his newest albums will have one, one or two songs that are pretty good and they're kind of really some weird remakes of his old stuff, if you think about it, right? Sure. Um, very few people have that creative surge out of their 20s. And so we were debating, is this in the brain or is it, you know, your environment changes? But in business and in leadership, I think you actually get better as you get older. Uh, I look at life as putting arrows in a quiver that mm -hmm. are preparing you for the next battle. And so I feel I'm so much more competent as a businessman, as a leader, as a, as a father uh, today than I was when I was in my 30s and 40s. Uh, and some of that is, you know, your 20s are fun. Uh, your 30s, you're trying to make a ton of money. You're trying to finally get there. You know, your 40s, you actually are doing it and you're starting. Your, your leadership decade really starts happening in your 50s, uh, you know, 60s. And then, you know, by your 70s and 80s, your wisdom and you're supposed to be kind of the wise old man. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, that's maybe a story that I'm telling myself. But I, you know, we had that great success and we screwed it up. And, you know, I don't think I'm financially, well, just, to, just about getting back to where I was financially in 2007. But I, I don't, I feel so much more accomplished and competent than I did back then. Uh, let me just, sorry to step in, but let me just ask sort of a follow-up, which is, do you think that's a function of just having experience and foresight now? Whereas, you know, in our 20s, maybe even our 30s, we don't know what's out there, the great beyond, you know, we are still exploring. And now you sort of, you know, you've been around the block a couple of times. Is that why you feel better, you think? You know, I think what it is, is I gave a graduation speech at University of Iowa, which was really cool because I never given a graduation speech. And the theme was, you know, know thyself, not thy sultum is the Latin. Um, right. And I talked about all the different ways to to explore yourself and, you know, from travel to prayer and meditation and ayahuasca and, you know, all, all the full the full gamut. I don't think many people in their 20s start that journey. Right? Most people don't start that journey until they screw up. Uh, they get divorced, they lose a job, they become an addict, they, they do something really bad. They get arrested and they're like, well, how did that happen? So they get a shrink or they, they go on that internal journey. And I yeah. think for me, you know, things were on the fast track. It was all good. And, and e each time I screwed up, it forced me to start that process of looking in. And it's, I think I've just done a better job at, I haven't made it to the, to the promised land by any stretch, you know, uh, but I, I have that muscle and that, that ability to slow myself, think about things, you know, uh, and not get caught into this story of who I am. It's a, this is a question I ask a lot of people and it's sort of, you know, we've been dancing around a little bit, but let's ask, I want to ask the nature versus nurture question because a lot of people will say, and you know, back in 2008, when I was an entrepreneur or in startup mode, uh, that word was not buzzy or cool. It's, it kind of meant you're unemployed. <laughs> and, uh, 
and so you know i've had to sort of take mental inventory too to figure out you know is this something i was born with or something that i learned along the way what's your take on it entrepreneurs born or are they or is it something we can learn you know, i actually think they're more learned than born uh and in some weird way you know a lot of entrepreneurs aren't balanced uh you think of you know elon musk who's maybe the best entrepreneur we have right now and then you look at his work ethic and and his personal life and his you know his at times burst of just sheer arrogance uh you know all the shit that makes him elon musk and you're like yeah that guy could use a little more meditation and some internal work uh yeah but he might not be elon musk without it and so it's a funny balance and you know that it's always your mom and dad somehow right Seven billion, seven and a half billion people on the planet. Seven and a half billion people whose mom and dad screwed them up. <laughs> you know, they loved them too much or not enough. Or, and yeah. so, as we do that internal journey and figure out, hey, I'm okay. Uh, you know, people people heal that trauma of youth. And I think often, you know, I see it in wrestling. Like the greatest wrestlers, the there's a there's a maniacal nature to their success that isn't necessarily the healthiest balance in life. Uh, but it gives them success. And so there's a, it's a funny balance to, to, to say, would you rather be successful or would you rather be happy? Uh, and you, I think you can do both. I honestly do. Uh, but a lot of really successful people are, are not so balanced. And so it's a funny thing to mess with. Yeah. A couple things I want to just ask follow-ups on. So what do you mean by maniacal? Do you mean like this win-at-all-cost mentality, like just steamroll. I, I think about Steve Jobs, who, you know, was a complete asshat, right? But yeah. genius. And just bulldozed people who didn't agree with him or, you know, put him out of business or, you know, whatever he did that was... That's, a, that's exactly what I was talking about. And, yeah. you know, I, I never had the, the pleasure of meeting Steve Jobs, but I've read the books and, and watched him. And you're like, ah. And part of you thinks, dude, you got so much going for you. Where Find the love. Find the love. Uh, and... Uh, and I'm sure there were moments he found the love. He had wife and kids. and um, But I think that's, listen, Bill Gates I look at as like a hero because somehow he made this transformation from nerdy geek to, and you know, he even said it, like he was just so focused on Microsoft and he woke up and he said, my God, I should have started giving back a little early. Uh, and, you know, now he's the world's greatest philanthropist. He reads more books in a week than I do in a year, uh, which is just depressing. Uh, <laughs> you know, he never seems rattled. Uh, and so he's done something right. Uh, so, so then I guess I, I should ask, so how do we develop this emotional, because we're talking about emotional intelligence, right? This, uh, they'll call them the soft skills, but let's face it, they're not the soft skills anymore. Like they are their required skills for great leaders or even managers who manage projects. I mean, you've got to have the emotional component. And I think when you talk about someone like Elon Musk, who is, who's very, aloof sometimes and loose uh you know these are endearing qualities for sure to see i sometimes i almost feel like i'm watching in a way like an albert einstein you know it's like you people just get out of my way just be you know sh you know i'm going to tell you what's up you know with the universe yeah. and and i feel like we're very privileged to have elon among us uh, i don't want to inflate his head any bit more but it's sort of <laughs> It's sort of great to have someone like him who uh, is like that. But at the same time, 
you know, I don't know how great of a, a leader it is to work for him. So let, talk about emotional intelligence. And, and if we are someone like Elon, uh, who doesn't have a filter or doesn't care, uh, or has FU money, right? Uh, how do we develop this emotional intelligence? Listen, I think one of the mistakes we make in our education system is we don't have classes in living, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you were thinking of developing a school, you would teach kids how to live. Uh, right. And, you know, we maybe used to do that in a religious setting, right? I took CCD classes. We grew up Catholic. And so there was some of that. But how do you get in touch? You know, it's therapy, it's, it's meditation, it's travel, it's all those things I was talking about. How do you get in touch with yourself? And how do you heal that trauma? Everyone has some trauma. It's either big T or little T, right? You know, uh, but how do you kind of learn the tools to kind of get through that? And that doesn't get taught in school. I remember talking to, to the president of Princeton. I had come back from this India retreat, which was really life changing. And I was like, oh, you guys should have classes like that. And they were like, yeah, it's not what we do. Uh, <laughs> and every once in a while now at a university, there'll be a center for wellness or, you know, a meditation center or, or a couple classes on happiness. And they're always the, they're always the most popular ones. I think Yale teaches a class on happiness and it's, it's sold out all the time or, you know, over, oversubscribed. Um, and so I do think we need to change the curriculum from elementary all the way through, through university that has some ability for, you know, focus on how do you, how do you heal yourself? How do you, how do you find self purpose? Right. So many kids come to school and they've got the Korean mother on their shoulder, or the Jewish mom or the Catholic mom who's Johnny's got to be a doctor or I really want you to be a lawyer because your dad. You know, how are you going to figure out who you're going to be with your mom right on your shoulder? Uh, yeah. And so that process of growing up happens. And, and I think we need to teach that. Yeah, I agree. I think. I think change has to come from all directions. It has to come from the top down. It can start from the bottom up, from the middle out. Part of it sometimes I get frustrated because I feel like we're we're being conditioned or the the idea of perpetuating the wrong metric is pervasive, right? Like so it's all about vanity metrics, you know. How many likes and followers do you have? How many subscribers do you have? How much money is in your bank account? You know, uh, how flat is your belly? I mean, whatever the metric damn is, right? Damn like killing me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could go on and on and on, right? Like, so it's all these sort of aesthetic metrics. and um, But it's even funny, like, you think about food. So we know the American diet's not a good diet, right? We know we have an obesity problem in America. Here's a stunning statistic. When I graduated from college, which was whatever, 33 years ago, God, um, doesn't feel that long ago. It really feels like it was like 10 years ago. But well, I was going to say, you look amazing. Well, thank you. 33 years ago, the average Amer American uh, female was 40 pounds lighter than she is today. 40 pounds. The average American male was about 30 pounds lighter. Uh, mm -hmm. We've gained a giant amount of weight in 33 years because we eat the shit diet. We all know it, yet it's so hard to change the food yeah. companies, our behavior, you know, the Cheerios or the Frosted Flakes, the, you know, the, the, the you go to Starbucks and you get a, a coffee and it's got like 900 calories because they put all the other shit in it, uh, <laughs> you know. And so it, it talks about how hard changes once the path starts going. And Yeah. Why is organic, healthier food more expensive than crap food? Why is that? It's so 
ironic and wrong, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's, and it's, so now that we know it, right, we know it, we've got a new president, you know, Joe Biden's going to start pretty soon. And there's probably a less than 1% chance he's going to stand up there in the bully pulpit and say, guys, we got to change our diet. Michelle <laughs> Obama tried a little bit, right, with the let's move. and But she even shied away. She started thinking about diet and she moved to exercise because there was pressure from Coke and Pepsi and all the food companies. And mm-hmm. we need a complete wholesale shift. And it's, and it's not that this was meant to go on a food rant, uh, but it's the same thing with changing lots of things. How do we change the education system? Like yeah. status quo is so hard to change. I'm working on the prison you know, the prison industrial complex, right? Criminal justice reform. And it is so freaking obvious what we're supposed to do, right? We have a system of punishment and degradation where we traumatize, traumatize people and they come out broken down six, eight, 10, 12 years later, where we should take people who lose their liberty for doing something shitty and try to rehabilitate them and heal them heal their trauma so they come out and they're productive citizens and they pay tax and they don't go back to jail. Like it's so obvious and everyone you tell them, they're like, duh, yet it's so hard to change the ingrained system. Just piss yeah. me off. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, it's interesting you say that because I'm, I'm doing a, a full length documentary on foster care and adoption. It's partly based on my personal experience because I'm adopted. Um, I had a pretty good childhood, but uh, if you want to call it, big T or little T. I definitely have my T in some, some way. And, uh, and there's a lot of research and evidence that I think it's like 25% of the prison population has come from foster care or adoption. And so, you know, even backing it up or zooming it out a little bit further about systemic problems, you're talking about, you know, instead of just treating the symptoms or trying to put a bandaid on the bleeding you know, maybe we need to zoom out a little bit more and look about, you know, how we're t- taking care of families uh, who are less fortunate, or you know, the education. There's a stat that'll 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 depress you and blow your mind. Ninety-four percent of women in prison and jail have been raped before they got to prison and jail. Ninety-four percent. And so, if you think rape is traumatizing, I'm guessing it really is. Uh, that's almost every single woman that's in jail. Has that trauma? Forget the other traumas that got them there. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, there's a there's a real argument. We should have a whole different system for women. Like there yeah. can be no women in jail. So then let's use that uh, to for me to ask the question, like, so how, how do we make change happen? You know, like, as much as we want to do it. So let's bring it back to like the the granular level, which is, you know, I'm a business owner. I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to change my little piece of heaven in my part of the universe i'm trying to you know grow what i've got going how do we create this change among our team and then you know how do we make it happen well i mean the first piece is change has to happen at an individual level right when i was thinking about how do you raise your kids i only had one rule which was kind of be nice and i said well you can't tell kids me i should have to model it Uh, and so and you're not going to be kind and gentle until you're gentle and kind to yourself and so if you don't do that work just doesn't you know you can't be nice you can't yell at your kid that's so counterintuitive right yeah you have although to, you, it's 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 what we were told i mean as kids probably like do as i say not as i do that was a thing yes you got they got to do as you do they're going to model what you do and so you start change happens at an individual level and, and and that's partly structurally how do we 
create that in schools? How do we create that that space? I, you know, we we've been doing a lot of work at my philanthropy here uh, in criminal justice and in democracy. And our theory of change really is to empower local communities. And so, instead of giving money to candidates, we give it to community groups. Um, what you find, and, and I learned this from my sister who did a lot of work overseas, is, you know, if you're a poor African community or a underrepresented community in the United States, you know what you want and you know what you need much better than the guy from 2000 miles away knows. Uh, right. And so we've been funding local community organizing groups to start having a voice. That's really a listening exercise. Uh, mm -hmm. By giving them the money, you're broadly listening. You're giving them a voice. And so I do think when I think about political change in this country, uh, it's going to happen at a local level. When I think of criminal justice, you know, I kind of think of a full army. We, you've got to fund local groups. You've got to listen to the formerly incarcerated. Uh, the stories are amazing anyway. I mean, you could, you could fascinate yourself as a director just hearing story after story of, uh, of how people got there. And, and, you know, listen, lots of people that are in jail needed to be in jail for some period of time because they were a danger to society. Yeah. A ton of people didn't. Uh, and so it's funding that those groups and listening to them, but it's also changing culture. So it's in movies and in art, it's changing the way people perceive things. And it does, right. you, you see it, what happened in gay marriage, you know, it was Ellen DeGeneres. It was the, the, the kiss on TV. It was starting conversations. And then once it happens, it all kind of rolls. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think in criminal justice, we're getting closer to that. George Floyd moment, you know, brought up a lot and accelerated that process. Um, but it's not all top down and it's not all bottoms up. It's, it's changing hearts and minds, changing at the local level, having some national leaders. I mean, it's a really complicated army. Uh, and, you know, none of it's easy. Right. And that's part of it. <laughs> that's part of it, right? I mean, nothing worthwhile is easy anyway. And if, and if, and if that's the toughest thing in the history of this world that we ever do, you know, if we ever get some progress and more traction, that's the way it's got to be done, the hard way. You know, I got this from my sister as well. You might not see the end game in your lifetime, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's okay. You do your chapter while you're here on earth, while you're in your productive years, and then you pass the baton, knowing, you know, as Martin Luther King said, the arc of, you know, history bent towards justice in every one of these things. Uh, you know, I am positive that in some period of time, we're going to have a far more just criminal justice system. I hope it's within 10 years. Uh, I'm seeing changes. But, you know, yeah. if, if in 10 years it's it's not great, if, if it's better than today but still shitty, you know, we will have made some progress. And so that's that's hard because we like immediate results and things, and big structural shifts don't happen fast. Well, I think it goes back to sports and this idea, and if I just weigh in my two cents for what it's worth – I really think it comes down to intentions and effort. You know, if, if you put your best effort out there on the mat and you still get pinned, we're, we're still going to clap and go, yeah. all right, good job, because it's the best you could do, you know, and, and that's all we can do as individuals is our very best. And, and that's all that matters is intention and, and effort, I think. Yeah, no doubt.
I want to hear more about what you're doing. You know, what's important to you, what's value to you, what's valuable to you right now, uh, and then I'll ask you a follow up question when you start talking about that. Like, so what's what's keeping you up at night? And and like, so I'm like in you know when I think of my life right now, it's the circus guy with seven sticks and plates spinning on them. And yeah. you know, I I have a shrink who calls himself an expander. He said, "I don't shrink is no good. I want you to expand." So he's an expander. Uh, and he says, don't bitch about it because you kind of chose this life. And he's right. I really enjoy doing lots of different things. Um, I have a cryptocurrency business called Galaxy Digital. Uh, this is as exciting as a time for Bitcoin, blockchain, crypto as we've seen ever. And so that's taken a ton of my effort. Uh, okay, so pause right there. Let me ask about that. So I know nothing about this, only enough to be dangerous. So like... Why is everyone hating on this kind of, you know, digital currency? Why does why does Warren Buffett hate it? You know, like one of the most prolific investors. Why is he just a traditionalist? Like, give me the give me the straight talk. So to start with, most traditional investors only were thinking about Bitcoin to start with, and Bitcoin's really an unbelievable experiment, right? So if you go back to where gold came from, right? People thought it came from the gods, from the ancient Egyptians, the Aztecs, the Mayas. It was this blessed metal that came from the gods. Yeah. Um, and it became special. It's only valuable because we say it's valuable. Right. It's the social construct that makes it valuable. You could take all the gold, this is a crazy statistic, that's ever been mined in the history of the world and melt it down, and it's a cube 63 feet across. So think about it. You could put that in the middle of L.A. or New York City, and it would be a $9 trillion, $9 trillion sculpture. Yeah. So that makes no fucking sense. Other yeah. than we say it's valuable. Well, I, I heard this story, too. And I don't know if you heard the same thing about the, all the diamonds, you know, the De Beers company. There's plenty of diamonds. Apparently, they're not as scarce as we all think. Like, they're just keeping them in these limited quantities so, because cause scarcity creates value. Right. And And, and – so, but gold is, is relatively scarce. So Bitcoin is really scarce. There are only 20 million Bitcoin that'll ever be mined. The question was, well, how did we get it to be seen as a store of value? How did that social construct develop? And it started, you know, it has this magic origin story, right? Almost like gold. It's, it's a miracle. This yeah. man or woman or group of people named Satoshi Nakamoto created this line of code in a white paper and floated in the river and people started saying, wow, that makes sense. So is that accurate though? Is that just lore or is that? No, that's, that's, right. that's exactly what happened. No one yeah. knows who Satoshi is. Uh, right. That's it's like, you know, Al Gore invented the internet. Is that true? Like, I don't know. <laughs> but if, if we knew who Satoshi was, I don't think Bitcoin would be Bitcoin. I honestly don't. Same technology, but it's a fascinating technology. So what, you know, money by definition is political, right? A government decides how much money they're going to print. Oh, I want to build a new bridge. Let me give you some more money. And if they, if they are irresponsible with that, that, that uh, leadership, the money gets worth less and less and less. And you've seen examples of it recently in Venezuela where you could use the money for toilet paper uh, and you'd be saving yourself some money, you know, right. or, right. Or, uh, or Argentina at times or Weimar Germany. So those are the extreme examples. But you can yeah. look at an example like even in Britain, the pound sterling, right? One pound used to buy you a pound of silver, of sterling. Right. Pound. 
now it gets this much, you know? And so political systems debase their currency over time. And Bitcoin is outside of politics. It's its own sovereignty. There'll never be more than 21 million. And so now that the world starts thinking that it's valuable, it is valuable. It's like a piece of art. And it, in some ways for the young people, it's like social money. You know, we have social, uh, social networking and this is social money. It's, it's yeah. an internet money. But for older people, for macro investors, for all investors, it's becoming a, a hedge against the debasement of currency, a hedge against governments losing responsibility. And now you've got Abby Johnson who runs Fidelity and Mickey Melker, who's maybe the best fintech investor in the world. And Bill Miller, who is this legendary, you know, uh, investor from Baltimore or from Florida, uh, but he ran Leg Mason and Pete Brigger and Stan Druckenmiller, who's the god of all macro trading. Like he is the goat and he's bought it. And so these guys are Warren Buffett level. You know, Druckenmiller and Warren Buffett are roughly the same level. and all of a sudden they're saying, I believe it. And so it's kind of crossed the road. And why it's gone up from, you know, 8,000 to 18,000 this year is because people say, now it's a store of value. So it's become yeah. gold. And it's only 3% of gold. Is there a governing body around cryptocurrency? Nope. That's the cool thing. It's, it's a decentralized system. And so right. the spirit of cryptocurrency, the spirit of the blockchain revolution was F you to the man. We don't right. trust centralized authority. That's what the spirit was. We are going to, and blockchains allow a permanence, right? If I tell you I'm going to pay you $20 in three years uh, and it goes on a blockchain, it's programmed in, it goes in three years uh, and I can't erase it. It's up there permanently. So it brings transparency uh, and some egalitarianness to the system. And yeah, there's, a, there's an independence. You get the feeling like, you know, the banks are in cahoots with whomever, you know, corporate america yeah. or and, the and government the, or big picture it's a democracy the democratization of of finance right so if you're if you and i decide shit let's go out and drink and we don't want to let our wives see what we put on the credit card so let's let's get some cash out of the atm uh you know and you're taking 100 bucks out they're going to charge you 350 in fees if, right. you, if i take 30 bucks out they're going to charge me 350 well when you're taking 30 bucks out and you get charged 350 that's like a 12 percent surcharge that's yeah. free i can yeah. give you a naked picture uh, you know uh, on one of 94 apps for free that's a lot of pixels yeah uh, but i can't send you money like it makes no sense and so this revolution in payments uh in in all of finance is going to happen over the next 10 years and you're going to see the what banks make and what the tax banks take from individuals go from here to here yeah, that's pretty exciting. So you're you're at the ground floor then of this thing. I am a revolutionary in that respect. Mm-hmm. And, and this may be something you pass on to your future posterity. Then it sounds like I mean because we're just getting started with the whole crypto, you know, adoption yeah. level, right? Like we just I, started. I don't think I think in ten years you'll start noticing things have changed a lot. Uh, you know, and like change happens slowly. And then you look back and like, oh, that, I mean, you think about it, the internet bubble was 1999 and you didn't really have Facebook and the iPhone until 2005, six, seven. Uh, you didn't have movies that you could watch. Uh, you know, that was six, seven years after the internet bubble. Uh, and now the internet dominates everything we do. Yeah. Uh, 
so quick quick uh give a quick pro tip then to someone who's maybe has nothing knows nothing like me but has interest how do we get into the game like what's the first step you know i think the first step is actually buy yourself a hundred dollars worth of bitcoin you you know you get a you get a coinbase wallet or or one of the other companies that uh you know do wallets and you just understand and then you send ten dollars to your friend in zimbabwe if you have a friend in zimbabwe You're like well that was freaking easy um and so it's kind of play with the architecture of the system a little bit um as an investment advice i would put some portion of your net worth into bitcoin and not look at it for 10 years it's going to be worth a lot more money what's the mission of your if your cryptocurrency company what what are you what's what are you trying to accomplish so i was kind of the oldest guy in crypto uh, honestly, are one of the oldest guys. And I came from a traditional Wall Street background. I worked at Goldman Sachs. I worked at this company called Fortress. Um, and so when I started, I did it for a few reasons. I wanted to, to understand what the young people were doing. And it's fun to work with young people. Um, and I thought there was a place to be the bridge between traditional Wall Street institutional world and this crypto world. And so we, we put ourselves in between. And so we used to call ourselves the Goldman Sachs of crypto, but it's it's can we be this bridge to the from the institutional world who's now finally showing up? And so our business has got really exciting in the last six months. Um, it took a long time for institutions to kind of buy in. Right. Everyone was so skeptical. J.P. Morgan, Jamie Dimon, Warren Buffett, they're all changing their mind. Um, and so you'll see every single bank in the world engaged in blockchain and crypto within the next five years. I think it's important to step back and look at history. I remember, I remember a time thinking, being kind of skeptical about putting my credit card number into a computer to buy something online. Yeah. To be like, I, I think I'm probably going to get my credit card number stolen. There's this hesitancy, right? And then you know we draw a line, like I'll never do that, and then we walk right over it. And so the the whole cryptocurrency movement, it feels like that right now. It feels very much like the 1990s when I was like, should I? buy this thing online is this website legit uh and then it turns out that it is yeah that there's a that's a that's a good analogy and you know listen the user experience the user interface in the long run a lot of people wouldn't even notice things are done on blockchains right i always say when i watch tv i got no freaking clue what's happening in the back of the tv in a lot of what's being rebuilt the architecture of the financial system it's going to be like the back of the tv uh, what you will notice is every single person on the planet is going to have a wallet that's going to exist on your phone and you're going to have bitcoins in there and you're going to have tickets to movies in there and you're going to have stocks in there and your wallet is really going to be your bank. Yeah. Uh, and that will be a big shift. You won't go to JP Morgan and wait in line at the, 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 the ATM anymore. It'll all be in this wallet. Uh, so that goddamn phone that you already are really attached to is going to be that much more important. Yeah, I love it. So this show is watched by a lot of entrepreneurs, freelancers, business peeps. You know, maybe they were like me working for the man at some point and they're thinking about a side hustle. I like to talk about the F word, you know, failure. I like to talk about fear. My people want to level up. They want to learn stuff from people like you've been there and done that. So what mistakes have you made? And in the context of like, what did you learn from it? And talk about that a little bit about the process, because some people I'm afraid are hiding and almost, you know, going back to where we started full circle, we're avoiding the pain, we're avoiding the difficult things because it's difficult when in fact the irony is we need to go through that to stretch, grow, tear our muscles so they can get stronger. What's gone right? What's gone wrong in order for you to get it right? I think the biggest mistake 
that I've made and times I continue to make is thinking like you want to be nice uh, and your gut feeling, your intuition tells you that's not the right person for the job, but you know, I'll try to fit the square peg in the round hole. And, you know, personnel decisions are by far the most important decisions in starting new businesses and running old businesses and running new businesses. If you don't have the right team on the field, you're not going to win. You got a great idea, wrong team, you're screwed. And that sense of trying to work it out and be nice when you know it's the wrong decision is you've got to just deal with your reality. If the reality is wrong guy for the job, be graceful, be, be kind on the way out, but don't spend 11 months trying to make it work. And then it doesn't work and then you got to hire someone else. Yeah. And, and so I, I, you know, I was on a phone call last night with a new business for starting and, and something that should have been joyful started getting stressful. And, you know, the other entrepreneur uh, who's spectacularly successful called me up today. He's like, how did we turn something that was fun into something that was not fun? And it was because we hired the wrong guy uh, and lovely guy and maybe should be on the team, but not in charge. And yeah. so I think so much of it is is trusting that. And you always know. And, you know, it's like just rip the fucking Band-Aid off. Uh, <laughs> again, do it nicely. You yeah. know, pay your severance. You know, be an asshole. Yeah. But if the, if, the, if the team isn't the right team, you're not going to succeed. I like that. And if I could just add my two cents into something that I learned the hard way too is it is important to, you know, cut where you need to cut or make changes. But like I found that people are very appreciative if I can help relocate them to say like, you know, because one of my personal skills, one of the things that I'm exceptional at is I'm really great at seeing the value and talent in other people. Like I'll be like, oh, those skills are perfect for this job or that project and so you know if someone's going to fit on the team i'll say you know what this is not working out but i have someone in mind for you and i want to help you know place you if if that's something that you want and i think that goes a long way with people because sometimes those team members employees whatever they just need to grow a little bit and maybe they'll come back around you never know like or 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 run the company that you want to work with. So not burning a bridge is also really important, right? That's great advice. And, you know, listen, I, I sometimes feel like I'm an employment agency in, the, in that same way. Uh, and I've got plenty of people that have worked for me that are still very good friends that don't work for me anymore. And so I do think there's a graceful way to, to move people out uh, and help them move on. And often you're doing them a favor, right? Yeah. If you think they're in the wrong job, they're probably in the wrong job. Uh, yeah. And so no one likes to be in the wrong job. It's too much stress. Yeah, and don't don't fire them during a pandemic or right at Christmas time, December twenty third, without without like you know some sort of parachute or uh, or Plan B, or else yeah, that's not cool. I I'm with you there. Yeah, proudly said we fired nobody during the pandemic. Uh, what else you got? We've covered some good ground. Are we heading in the right direction? We're I had a lot of fun um, as an investor uh, in betting on. You know, I was one of the first, or if not the first, investor in psilocybin. Uh, I backed Nate Parker in the movie uh, Birth of a Nation. And so one of the wonderful things about, which end up winning Sundance and lots of great things, one of the wonderful things about having some success is the ability to, you know, bet on other things, bet on other people, mm -hmm. and, you know, help, help, help those projects flourish. That's been as, as fun for me and as profitable. Uh, the the mushroom bet is is in it making me a fortune, 
And so it's also giving me great bragging rights with my kids. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, let me ask, let, let me ask about signals. So, you know, maybe it's a lesson we can apply to other things, whether we invest in things like psilocybin or, you know, other things that we may see, uh, you know, blossom in the future. Like what are those signals? How, how do you know either someone or something is, is going to hit? How do you know where to put your attention and, and your, your money? You have to know yourself and what kind of investor you are, right? So I have always been a little bit, I fight authority, authority. I was like, you know, uh, I've been a rule breaker my whole life. Contrarian, uh, yeah. When I was in the army, uh, I got in trouble all the time because my uniform was messy and I had strings <laughs> coming down it. Even though I was really competent at flying helicopters and doing this, the, the school stuff. Yeah. When it came to like looking strack, I just got crushed. Uh, and I think that was just my like, you know, wanted to fight back. And so for me, my investing style is contrarian, right? I'd rather look stupid than be stupid. Uh, and, you know, so when I was the first kind of Wall Street guy to invest in Bitcoin, I'm sure people are like, what the hell is that dude doing? Yeah. Um, but that works for me. And yeah. so what I learned in investing is you got to understand what works for you. Uh, and so I'm a contrarian by nature. Uh, yeah. It's just my personality and it's my investing side and I'm intuitive. I don't need all the details. Matter of fact, I invested in, you know, these two movies that both did very well without even reading the script. I heard the story. I believed in the director. Uh, and I was like, that's going to work. And so I just have good intuition. I was you know, lucky to be born that way. I don't know if, you know, and so for me, it's intuition and network because I don't make any money by sitting under a tree and thinking, okay, <laughs> apple falls and, it's not the way I work, but I hear someone tell me something. I'm like, that guy's right. Mm -hmm. uh, and so for me, having this diverse, rich network, I learn all the time. Uh, let me let me ask how how do you how do you get out to there to your network? Like, what kind, do you consume media? Like, or are you like moving your bones and you're out there shaking hands, kissing babies? Like, how how do you get that? I, I'm. How do you get out there? How do you build that network? I am hyper social. Uh, it's. I think I'm like a five standardation. Like I need people. Mm -hmm. uh, I did a 12 day silent meditation. Oh my God, it was painful. <laughs> I was like, all I want to do is talk to the guy next to me. You know? <laughs> uh, and so I've been privileged in some ways, right? I've got a big family of seven. Uh, and so I always had my brothers and sisters, friends. Uh, I went to Princeton, which is a great networking place when you leave the school. I worked at Goldman Sachs, which was a great networking, you know, all these Goldman Sachs partners do on other things. Uh, my brother-in-law runs the TED conference. So you go to the TED conference, it's an amazing place to meet people. And so I have this just naturally rich network that fits my personality. I travel a ton. Uh, and so over the 35 years, 33 years that I've been in college, uh, you know, I've just met tons of people. And the one you get wealthy, deals come to find you. People are bringing shit to you all the time. Will you help? Yeah. Help? But can I pause and maybe underscore a, an important lesson that I think I heard you say, which is really this idea of proximity, putting yourself in a position to win or succeed. You know, we might have the tendency to hunker down or to, you know, go inside, especially when we're not being successful. Uh, but I just heard you rattle off, you know, four or five different like watering holes, right. That you could hang out at and and learn stuff or meet people or find opportunities you know the goldman sachs the the family connection the uh, brother-in-law connection all of those 
you're putting yourself in proximity of opportunities. And I think that's a, that's an important lesson because a hundred percent. I tell young kids all the time, you know, you get your first job mostly to meet other peers and in 10 years are going to have all these cool jobs. Yeah. And go to a place with a training program. If you can go to a place yeah. with the youth. I think it's I think it's a really undervalued and underutilized tactic to to success. And partly because it's hard to see beyond, you know, around the bend. Another reason is cuz of patience. It's hard to you know like so, you know, Mike, when is it going to happen for me? Is maybe the 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 questions we ask, you know, it's, is it worth going to this TED conference, but I got to listen to all these inspiring talks, you know, but um, putting yourself there in, in that place, you know, is putting yourself in a position to find opportunity. I think it's things like, you know, criminal justice. I think, you know, we've had a lot of success in a short period of time. And when I was thinking about why me and my team, we're out there, like we're talking to the local, you know, leaders, we're talking to formerly incarcerated. I think I visited seven or eight jails in the last couple of years. Uh, amazing experiences each time. Uh, there's lots of philanthropists that write big checks and, and you know, that's very needed, but don't, yeah. that don't do the rest. I actually think the fun of it, the joy of it, and, and actually the lessons come from, from that networking, from meeting those guys, from hearing those stories. And so even if yeah. it's not commercial success, it's success in whatever you're going to do, you've got to, because that's, that's where you find domain expertise, mm -hmm. right? What you need to hunt out when you're a young kid a uh, young entrepreneur is people with domain expertise. Yeah. Or, or more experienced entrepreneurs for that matter. Right. The other thing I heard you say that was really smart. Um, I think you're in good company is, you know, with your criminal justice and philanthropy. I mean, you're doing it at the grassroots level. You're trying to create a groundswell or at least empower people who are not empowered uh, by funding them. I mean, as far as I know, the research and study that I've done of, you know, the civil rights movement, that's how it all started is, you know, it started at the grassroots level, became this groundswell. It wasn't, you know, widely funded by, you know, huge organizations. It started with the people, word of mouth. I mean, as the story goes, you know, this March on Washington or the, you know, the speech that Martin Luther King Jr. gave, you know, uh, there in Washington, they had no internet. You know, they didn't email everyone. It was like there were some flyers passed out and word of mouth and churches told other churches. And all of a sudden they had like a gazillion people show up uh, because it was important. And I think I think you're on the right track doing it the way that you're doing. I think that's the way that you can have this sort of massive success. Well, that's the hope. Yeah. Uh, what ground haven't we covered that we should talk about? I mean, family. I mean, I, you know, I guess if I would, would talk about one thing that I think uh, is interesting to me is family and, you know, people define family differently. I'm lucky enough to have seven brothers and sisters and I've got my own four kids and 23 cousins and first, you know, and so, but we also have people that we consider family. So the family grows. I think when you think about happiness and you think about success, you know, you need, you need three things, right? You need a partner. Uh, you need a, a group of friends, a core group of friends, they're your peers. And then you need that broader community. And that doesn't, you know, you don't just inherit that. you got to nurture that a little bit. And so like, if I was going to do a checklist, I'd be like, all right, how am I doing with my partner? Eh, not so well. <laughs> or great. How am I doing with my friend group? 
you know, what have we done together? You know, what, and that friend group, I don't know if it's 15 or 20 or eight or whatever it is for you. And then what's that broader 200 person community? Uh, and nurturing those three things, because, you know, when, you, when you're at your funeral at 88 years old, if you could actually, you know, pop up from the, from the casket and, you know, shake the dust off like in Beetlejuice and look around, it's only those people, right? Nothing else matters. Nothing else you've done in life matters. It's that, those connections to those 80 people. And so I really, I spent a lot of time thinking about, like, nurturing that community. Uh, it's where I, you know, have the most fun in lots of ways. Uh, we bring new people into it. You know, we try to make it be expansive. And so maybe ours is a little bigger than, than the normal because we're a bunch of really uh, highly social creatures. Uh, but I think that's an important piece of like the entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs puzzle as well, because, you know, feeling healthy, feeling good about yourself is how you're going to be successful. I mean, we were just sitting back, you know, <laughs> chopping it up, reminiscing about the good old days and all that, <laughs> you know, tracking my roots, where I came from and where I'm going. Like I say, man, always said it. It's not about the destination. It's all about the journey. Ain't nothing changed but the weather. The dangling carrot that hang from the rear view. Your dreams in the past ain't nowhere near you. Backseat drivers got nothing but two cents. Shotgun riders, two buyers, they all liars.